Um, I have a lot to talk about this morning, so I'm just going to dive right in. You guys okay with that? Excellent. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to take a look at uh, the passage that was assigned to me was this famous passage in Acts chapter 2 that refers to what this early Jesus community is doing together right as this whole Holy Spirit thing gets started. And it comes right on the heels of the story of Pentecost. And so I want to take this passage. I want to kind of look at it, maybe turn it this way, maybe turn it that way. There's probably like 30 more ways, or the Jews would say 68 more ways that you could turn this gym and look at it. We'll look at two of them. Um, just to kind of throw it in front of us and just kind of marinate on it. I don't have some polished delivery this morning. More just like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's think about it historically. Let's, and then at the end, we'll have this, a bunch of stuff on the screen that we can kind of be like, okay, what is Jesus telling me as an individual? What is Jesus telling our family? What is Jesus telling our small groups? What is Jesus telling our church? Um, because we, we sit here as a body of people here in Cincinnati, a little corner of Cincinnati, Ohio. What does that mean for us as, as, as fellowshippers, worshipers here at UCC? So that's what I want to do. This passage comes at the end of Acts chapter 2. You already probably know where I'm headed if you've been in church for a long time. And uh, I got real tired of hearing this verse growing, this passage growing up. I was like, oh, no, not this one again. Um, but, but it comes right at the end of Jesus has ascended. Jesus has told his followers that they're going to be his ambassadors, his witnesses, He's sending them out to kind of help bring kingdom, not in an imperial way that we might think of today when we think of church and evangelicalism in the West, but maybe, maybe more of a bring shalom, bring order to chaos, stand against a world that's going one direction and bring wholeness that's pointed another direction. And then, and then they show up at a normal church gathering. If you remember, they've been pretty scared. If you remember the end of the book of John, they're, they're like holed up in a room with the doors locked. Even at, I, I preached this a few years ago. Even after Jesus shows up, if you remember, they're still there. Still, and then they finally kind of like make their way out because it's Shavuot. It's party season. And you need to go down to the temple. So I picture them with like their hoods up, like just making their way out for the first time. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. Somewhere in there they went to Galilee. So they've left the room. But Anyway, that's their first time out and about in public at a holiday celebration, and God blows the doors, literally blows the doors off the joint. And the Spirit shows up, and there's tongue speaking, and there's, all, and there's thousands of people gathered there because they're not in a house. They're in the house, which is the temple, because 3,000 people don't fit in the house. So That's a joke, sorry. For anybody that's ever gone to Israel, and they're like, this is where Pentecost happened. This building, which was built a thousand years later. Thank you for laughing at that one slow burn, but you guys got there. So the, it's, it's the temple. They're in the temple. The house, capital H. The Jew, did you never, why am I doing this? Okay, um, here's the passage. Let's just do that. Did I say I had a lot to talk about? I don't need to be doing what the Jew calls a temple. Okay. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so Jeremiah gave me this passage and said, can you, can you lead us in a discussion and reflection on the practices of the church? 
So what are the practices of this early church community? Not, let's not get too mechanical with that, but what are, the, what are the broad stroke practices that we see the church engaging in? Now, as I've always looked at this passage, this is just me. I, I have no idea if I'm right. In fact, Jeremiah originally gave me this passage and he had misquoted the, and I'm like, do you have something against verse 42 and 43? Or is that a, is that a typo? And, uh, and he said, oh, no, that's a typo. I said, and I said, I was just wondering if you had, like, some crazy take on verse 42 and 43. And he actually did. And so then I mulled that over all week long, and I'm like, thanks for that. Uh, so hopefully we'll have time and we'll go over that, too. Um, but as I've always looked at this passage, what I've always seen, again, not a, big, not a big deal, but as I've always looked at it, I see four practices and then a result, like fruit being born out of these four practices. It's just what my brain looks at when it sees. I see, them, I see the church in, intentionally engaging in these four things, and then out of that, all, God doing all this stuff because they choose to engage in these four things. So let me put those four practices on the screen. Now, you may want this. If you have your Bible, you may want it in front of you because I'm not, well, you know, you know me. I might jump back and forth, but I'm, I'm not planning on jumping back and forth to this passage. But if you have it, you can pull, pull that up. But... Here are these practices that I see in this passage. The first one is apostles' teaching. Let's just talk about these things historically. I think we read these things and we think, oh yeah, I totally know that. And we just kind of assume stuff and move right on. What, what, but what would the apostles, what is that? It's not the New Testament, because that hasn't been written yet. Right? <laughs> so we're not talking about that as the apostles. I think later that would be a fine reference. I'm not saying you shouldn't think about the New Testament when you think of the apostles' teaching. That's mostly written by people called apostles. That would be apostles' teaching quite literally. What are they devoting themselves to? At the very least, what they're devoting themselves to is you have this Jesus that showed up, walked and lived among us, and taught and embodied, not just taught intellectually, but also embodied a proper interpretation of what they would have called Tanakh. Say Tanakh. Tanakh would have been the Hebrew scriptures. Torah, Nevahim, Ketuvim. They haven't figured out the Ketuvim at this point. So it's mainly Torah and Nevahim. Ketuvim's kind of swirling around there. But you have the Hebrew scriptures. They would have called it the Bible. Not really, but that would be the connection in our mind. They have their Bible. And Jesus came and said, here's how you've all kind of read the Bible, and I'm here to settle the debate. I am living Torah in flesh and blood, walking amongst you. This is what Torah's all, so not just with his words, but also with his life, this is what Tanakh has always, not something new, this is what God always intended through Moses. You didn't always know that, but now you do because I'm here. That's a really crude shorthand way of putting that, right? So now Jesus has died and resurrected and he's left these apostles who walked with him and are now filled with the Holy Spirit, but they know, like they did the whole 40-day remedial course on kingdom of God with Jesus after the resurrection. These are guys and gals, 12 guys and a handful of ladies, who walked with Jesus everywhere, and they know what, it, what Jesus taught in a way that most other peoples don't. So, so at least this, this perspective, this way of handling Tanakh in Jesus, in Christ, at least that is the apostles' teaching. It may also reference, possibly, some connection to some kind of corpus that's swirling around. There's a lot of discussion about, we, we have things like, oh, uh, gospel scholars love to talk about source Q, which sounds like something from Star Trek. Um, I can't see anybody but the character Q whenever I read anything from a scholar that talks about Q source. Thank you for all the Trekkies in the room. So, so source quell or source Q 
But, but we also have something that eventually becomes what we know as the Didache later in the first century, which is like this church manual of sorts that informs us about what the early church was doing. It's certainly not scripture. But there are these, there are these things that the early church apparently has that we're relatively confident about. Like they're not, they're not just doing everything blindly by word of mouth, even though word of mouth would be more common for them. There, there is some kind of something. Is that what the apostles' teaching means? I don't know. It's at least the one. It could be more than that. But they are devoted to making sure that they get together and talk about how do we read the inspired word of God correctly and how do we live it out correctly. So this is one that I would say, like if I wanted to grade, like as I do this whole thing, in my mind, I'm kind of, ch I'm stopping at everyone going, how do we do on that? How does Christianity do? How does Christianity in the West do? But how do we do at University Christian Church? And I feel like this might be one of our stronger strengths, maybe. I feel like, but I'm kind of a Bible nerd, so I could be off. You could completely disagree with me, that's totally okay. But I feel like, yeah, we, we do apostles teaching well. We have a, what do we call the groups that are starting? Equip groups. We have an equip group at Dane. Like, we got all these people that are a part of this congregation. Some of them get paid. Some of them don't. And we love the Bible a lot, and we teach it. And we're, like, historically, like, we're all about the context and stuff. I love that part about this church. I have a hard time being a part of any church that doesn't want to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So maybe it's a good one. I'm not getting nearly as much smile, so I'm going to turn back to the screen. Second one would be fellowship. Now, you've probably, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've probably heard sermons and discussions around the word used for fellowship here being the word koinonia. And we've done a good job pointing out that koinonia is something deeper than just like, hey, I, and I love what Jeffrey have, has us do every week. This is not a critique. But the turn and greet everyone around you, like it's bigger than that, right? It's bigger than church potlucks in the fellowship hall. It's like, uh, it's, well, you guys are a rough crowd this morning. It, it, is, it is like this interconnected, it's this deeply intertwined, I'm all tied up. So in the Greek world, etymologically, that same word's going to get used with things like guilds in first century Rome. So a guild was like a cross between a college fraternity and a labor union. Okay? That's the best way to understand a guild. A guild is the brotherhood, the camaraderie. The relationship, the party, quite literally, they throw like parties that would make Greek row look like, <laughs> thanks for trying, little ones. These, these new moon festivals, these guilt feast festivals in the Greco-Roman world, that like there was the party and the brotherhood and the camaraderie, but then there was also the vocation. And if I'm a blacksmith, I'm a part of the blacksmith's guild. And we look out for one another and I make sure that you're successful and you make sure that if something happens, like we're all... So there's this, we're all tied up together, that same, there's this inner, it's not just we show up in the same spaces, I know you by name, we kind of go bowling every three months, there's a, thank you, there we go, there's a, there's this deeply interconnected, intertwined nature to the relationship, that's koinonia. How are we doing on that one? Some of you do it a lot better than I do, so I'm like, I'm starting to get more co convicted with number two because I'm busy, and I'm introverted, and I don't want to hang out with all of you. <laughs> and I don't have time. Uh, you know, so there's this, for some of us, this comes easier than others, and there's no guilt trip here. That, that's, that's just going to be natural based on, per just like for some of you, you're like, I don't need any more apostles teaching. 
Thank you very much. I've had all the podcasts I can handle. So, so, so we're all a little bit different as we enter. For me, <laughs> right, okay? Then there's the breaking of bread. And we're like, oh, wonderful, communion. Yes, and the early Christians definitely pulled the Eucharist into this practice of breaking bread. But breaking bread predates Christian Jesus, any of that stuff. Breaking bread is a reference to eating meals and, and the fellowship that comes with eating together. But, but many scholars will connect this idea to, it's a subversive sociopolitical act. So in the Roman world, Caesar would come, I was just watching something completely unrelated to spiritual anything, and it was referencing this. In the Roman Empire, sorry, I'm having social media things pop in my head right now. Thank you for everybody laughing at that. So in the Roman Empire, you had this, what they called bread and circus. So one of the things that you always struggled with a shortage on was grain in the Roman world. Always a shortage of grain. They were trying to get grain from everywhere. They were trying to get grain from Western Europe. They were trying to get grain from Northern Africa. They were trying to get grain from the East. They were trying to get grain because they could not grow enough grain. In fact, one of the tragedies of uh, the biblical world was, you remember the church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation? It was known in the biblical day as having some of the best wine in the world. And it was Caesar, it was... Uh, it was the Flavian family, the Flavian dynasty, that had them rip out all their grapevines to try to grow grain. But grain's not going to grow in that region of the world. So they not only couldn't grow grain, but they destroyed the wine. Oh, people were so mad. Anyway, so they could never get enough grain. Well, when they would find grain, Caesar would come through and make a political show of it. This is hard for us to relate to in our world. Right? So he would take the opportunity and he would come through and he would have what's called bread and circus. So he would give you bread and it comes with, it's like dinner and a show. It's, it's, it's Caesar saying, I've got what you need and I'm the one that provides sustenance, protection, security, provision for you. Isn't Rome great? Let's all be patriots. Okay? That was the message of bread and circus. So when you got together, and this is an ancient Jewish practice that predates Jesus, you would take bread and you would break it as a socio-political subversive act. It's you saying, Caesar doesn't provide bread for us. God does. We're not going to accept that. That's breaking of bread. Now, according to Josephus, they had something called love feasts. Now, as far as we can tell, love feasts were when you would, you would get together. I always, okay, now let's pick a, picture, picture a church potluck. But before you take the lids off the crock pots... You have to make sure that everyone's needs are met. So you all get together, and before you can eat, you make sure that everyone's, are you hungry? Do you have all the things that you need for groceries? Can you pay your rent? Can you do whatever that needs to be done? And when everybody's needs are met, and the room's like, we're good for another week, then you take bread and you go, see Caesar? And you break that bread. Now the early church obviously brings the Eucharist into these same moments and these same gatherings. I remember being a young 20-year-old pastor, 20, in a church very similar size and feel to this one. And I remember being this young punk that just thought I had these brilliant ideas. And I called us together for a Wednesday night mid-service gathering. And we all came together and we had the potluck and we had the crock pots. And I said, I did a little teaching on the love feast. And then I said, we're going to do this. We're not going to eat until everybody's needs in the room are met. And so we had, I think there was like five large tables, and we all started sharing. 
And I was feeling really good about myself until I, start, until I started walking around. And I started hearing some of the needs, like some of them were material needs, and some of them were quickly dealt with. Some of them were non-material. And I'm like, uh-oh. And then, and, and, but even those were getting met. I, I know somebody so-and-so. I can get you connected to social services. I can get you... I can get you connected to a counselor. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then the, I got to the back table. We had this new family that had just started coming to church. They hadn't been coming to church for two months. And they were like, we're about 10 grand behind on our mortgage and facing foreclosure. And we were not the kind of church, like, I don't know what this room could do. We were not the kind of church that was like, oh, hold on, let's just write the checks. It somehow, I can't even remember the details, but somehow it got figured out. I should not, I was sweating bullets in the back of the room. And eventually we got it figured out, and we broke bread, and we, it was brilliant. And then the next year, 21 years old, I went to summer camp with a bunch of 7th and 8th graders, 200 of them, just over 200, about 227th and 8th graders. And I did it again, <laughs> thinking I, hadn't, I had not learned my lesson, apparently. Because I was like, the 7th and 8th graders, like, what needs are they going to have? <laughs> Stupid of me, 21 years old. And so we start doing the whole thing, and needs are coming out. And here's what I didn't anticipate. They weren't just thinking about their needs. They started talking about their moms and their dads and their families. And, their, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and, 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 and there was one gal, I remember one gal, she said, my dad drives long-haul truck. So she, he goes on these week-long trips. I see him about once a week. And he sleeps, obviously, in the, in the, in the cab of his, of his semi-truck. And he has a sleeper cab, but there's nothing in it. Like, he, had to, he took everything he owed just to buy the truck. There's no mattress. He sleeps on a sleeping bag on the metal floor of the cab of this. And I would love, I would love if my dad could have a sleeping. But the problem is, is it's not like a regular-sized mattress. It has to be exactly the kind of mattress that goes into a, a truck like this. And, and I was like, uh. And within 30 seconds, this other guy's like, my dad used to drive long. He actually has two trucks that sit behind his house. Both of them have sleeper cabs. If, the, if you'll let me, because you take, it was, it was really passive aggressive because we take their cell phones away. If you'll let me have my phone, <laughs> I'll call my dad and we'll get it. Like, it was just crazy. It was the craziest thing ever. And that has nothing to do other than just crazy stories that I love to share when I talk about breaking bread. And then, like, breaking bread is more than just eating. Breaking bread is more than just the Eucharist. For them, breaking bread was this deeply, it's a practice. It's a, it's a commitment. It's intentional. And then there's obviously prayer, or as the NRSV translated, the prayers. There's like a liturgical approach to worship that they didn't abandon just because God showed up. So what does the passage say elsewhere? They, made, they met together daily in the temple courts. Because if you're in Jerusalem, you go to the temple, the temple courts three times a day to get together and go through the Amidah prayer and different liturgical acts of worship. So they're not forsaking those things. They're still doing those things. If you're not in Jerusalem, you would gather together at places like the synagogue. That was the social center of a town and a city. So, so they're engaging. So how are we doing? If we look at this list, like how are we doing? How are you doing as an individual? How are you doing as a family? How are we doing as University Christian Church with the apostles' teaching? How are we doing with fellowship? How are we doing with the breaking of bread? How are we doing with prayer? And because, this is how I've always read it, because the early church is engaging in these 
in these works and these pieces here, God is at work. And these are the things that kind of come out of that as a byproduct. That's how I've always seen this. I could be wrong. But because they're committed to those four practices, God's doing wonders and miraculous signs. God's showing up in all these practices and doing things, wondrous things, miraculous things. Because they're getting together for these four practices, they have everything in common. They're sharing. They're selling possessions. Because if you get together on a regular basis and you hear about somebody else's struggle and you have, like there's no way that those practices, if you're at all filled with the Spirit of God and wanting to follow Jesus, it's not going to impact you and you're going to want to do something about that. I think in our world, we typically kind of put things in categories and we have certain boundaries that kind of insulate us from those spaces. I know I do. I'll just say it that way. I do. It kind of keeps me from ever, ever really having to wrestle with what that may look like. And of course, my culture, I buy into the stupid lies, and so I'm always pushed to the very end of what I have. I'm always convinced I barely have enough, right? I just replaced windows in my house, all 29 of them. You do the math. I didn't have that sitting in the bank, so uh-oh. So now, ah, ah, you get my frustration? Ah. Some of you are doing the math going, we'll pray for you. <laughs> I could sell my home and still not pay for the windows that are in it. Okay, meet daily. Okay, now I'm going to avert my eyes because I live in Batavia and I barely see you guys twice a month. Right? And I travel and... They're meeting daily because this is a part of their natural rhythms. So again, I have to make sure I don't load myself down with guilt. I have to make sure I look at what's my world, what's their world. But there's something about living, they're living, they're doing life together. They're not just attending an event once a week together. They're doing life together. And there's a sense of intentionality to it. Worship, or excuse me, breaking bread in homes. So there's the idea of breaking bread again. But it's not just happening in one space, it's happening in personal spaces. There's a public corporate nature to this. There's a private personal nature to this. Worship is a response. Because we're doing these practices, gladness, sincerity, and praise is erupting out of this community. And then there's this, there's the favor of the larger community. I remember being challenged years ago in a whole nother world not this one, but somebody challenging our church. If your church was to go away, what would your community do? If your church was just gone, what would your community do? A, would they even notice? B, if they noticed, would they be like, whew? And if they were like, whew, would that be because of a general cultural um, stereotype of evangelicalism, or would it be because of your actual church? What would the, or would the, community be, would the community grieve on some level because you have such a positive impact and presence? Again, this is an area that I really love about this church. And every time that we pray, I hear, I hear common themes of prayer of people caring about those that struggle with poverty and homelessness. There's an awareness of the community. Like it comes out not just in the content. So you guys will go be a part of communities or ecumenical efforts. I think of um, Randy sharing with us about the things that he's been involved with for the last... Like, I love that part about this church. We probably get high, high marks as a church. I don't know how I'm doing, but we do, we maybe do well there. Um, Jeremiah had a fun take. I'm going to put one more slide up here and then I'm going to close. Jeremiah had a take that actually 
the breaking of bread and prayer is the definition of fellowship. And it appears that way in the NRSV in ways that it doesn't appear in some other translations. So, so when you're reading that, let me go back. I told you I wasn't going to, but here I go. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Notice the lack of the Oxford comma, which is a case to be made for the Oxford comma. Because Jeremiah's take is that the breaking of bread and to prayer is the, the content, the substance of koinonia for the writer in Acts. And as I looked at it, at, I mean, I'm no Greek scholar. I'm, I hate Greek. I've already lamented about that. But as I looked at it etymologically, I think, not grammatically, I think there's a case to be made. I think he's, he may be right. That Luke may be insinuating that as he writes it. So then that makes me do this. So then I'm like, well, maybe these aren't, maybe I want there to be four practices because I actually don't even want to look at the rest of the list. What if I actually looked at the rest of the list as practices? And so I made a list of seven because that felt like a biblical number. And I, and I, and I throw, what if, what, if these, what if it's not four practices and byproducts, but what if these actually all have a level of intention behind them? Some of these are going to make me more and more nervous. I don't have an answer. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just throwing it in front of you to see what the Holy Spirit wants to do with us this morning. So one more time. The apostles' teaching. Boom. Okay? How are we doing with that? Mm. Fellowship. The idea of breaking of bread and prayer. And again, remember what breaking of bread means. Like some level of commitment. Some social, social commitment to one another. An interconnected, an interpersonal, we take care of one another. And the prayers... What if having everything in common is not a byproduct? What if it's a practice? Don't amen that, Randy. I don't want to amen that. But what if it is? What if amen is exactly right? What if wondrous signs? I have all these charismatic friends, all these Pentecostal brothers and sisters. They love to tell me I'm far more Pentecostal and charismatic than I admit. How dare you? But what if wondrous signs is more of a practice than merely a byproduct? That makes me nervous. What does that even mean? I was, I was gone last week because I was at a big prayer gathering with a bunch of people that are far more Pentecostal than I am. And they, prayed for, and they prayed for my health situation. And when I say prayed for, I don't mean like we would pray for it. <laughs> I mean, like they prayed for it. <laughs> um, man, what if wondrous signs, I think that group would have said wondrous signs is a practice. I'm not sure we're going to put that on our website, but meeting daily, whether that's corporate and public gatherings or private and personal, they had a commitment to doing life together. How are we doing? I'm not scoring high on this one. This is not a critique. How are we doing? Uh, worship. What if that's a practice? I would, I would, that's an easy sell for me. What if gladness, sincerity, and praise is something that we have to give ourselves to intentionally? And what if actually finding favor in the larger community? What if this corner of, what if the university, this corner of Cincinnati, this neighborhood, what if making sure that we have a positive influence? What if, those, what if those are actually practices? Now I'm getting all the nods. This is your guys' list, by the way. You disagree with my first list. I can tell by your reaction, which is beautiful. 
which is wonderful, and that's why I put it up there. I have no like resounding, awesome, profound conclusion other than to just sit here with you all and look at this list and ask myself, what is the takeaway today? What's the takeaway today? What's the takeaway in this season of UCC? At the very least, for all of us as individuals, what's the thing? Again, this is not a list of to-dos. This is not something to make us feel guilty. This is something to just aid in reflection. What's the thing that Jesus is kind of drawing you towards going, hey, could you just have your eyes open and, and I will, I will, if, you will, if you will do your part, I will help you grow in that area. But, but you, will have to be, you'll, you will have to be awake to it. You will have to be watching for it. So what's the part of the list that for the next, at least the next week, the next season, whatever, some of us are, we have families, our family may, we may end up wanting to have a, a conversation with our families. Tomorrow is Yom Kippur for my family. Be a lot of conversations about sin and confession and repentance. Maybe your family has something, Thanksgiving, some family reunion, something coming up where your, your family may want to have a conversation about. How can we do this a little bit better in letting the early church serve as a model for us? And, and then there's, I mean, I mean, there's leaders of our church here. So maybe they, have an, maybe they even have a different, an extra level. Those that serve on the lead team, maybe they look at this list and going, because I think they would have a much better grasp of what are we, we have prayer committees, we have, we have uh, I can't remember what the names of all the committees are, we have building committees, we have uh, some form of social justice community, or committee, right? What do they call it? The justice group, excellent. And what, what else do we have, Megan? Ah, number seven, wonderful. Yeah. See, we do some of these things, and we do think some of these things in some really fun ways. It's part of what I've always enjoyed. So, but but I'm I'm assuming there's something on the list that maybe even our lead team would look at and say, maybe we ought to facilitate. Again, don't do the whole thing. That would cause all of us to freak out. But maybe there's something that God, the Holy Spirit's going. No, let's do a little bit better with this in 2024. It's fun. You guys with me? Good. Let's pray. Father God, we, we, we want to look back at these early believers we stand on the shoulders of, these early believers filled with the Spirit that started a movement, started a, they started a thing because you asked them to. They started a thing in a lot of ways. I'm assuming that it's not like they could have said no. Because you, you were at work, and you, you showed up, and, but they, no matter, they were, they were there. They were ready. Cracked vessels, ready to be filled by you. And um, God, we read these stories recorded in the book of Acts, and, and they serve for us as an opportunity sometimes to think back, to wake up, to consider, maybe even to confess at times, to repent, to change, to be transformed, uh, but to surrender to you again and again. So, um, God, would you, would your, I would just, I would just ask and pray that your spirit would move and blow through this place in the way that your spirit wants to. Um, that we would, we would hear things, that we would be prompted prodded as individuals, as families, as, as a church together 
to just continue to look a little bit more, just a little bit more this year than we did last year of this, like the people you'd want us to become here in Cincinnati. And then next year, maybe a little bit, a little bit more, just like the people you want us to become. Would you, could, would you, would you continue to move and breathe in and amongst our church? Um, Jesus, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.